Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, everyone. I wanted to start out today with a quick shout-out to Matron Saint, a super chic maternity line that wants to revolutionize the way you dress as you embark on motherhood. Their clothes are simple, stylish, and comfortable. Use the code PYC20 when you check out for 20% off your order. Now I want to ask you, my listeners, for a shout out. Rate and review Yoga Birth Babies on iTunes or Stitcher and follow PYC and Matron Saint on Instagram for your chance to win a $100 gift card from Matron Saint. Email a screenshot of your review and your handle to info at prenatalyogacenter.com. Thanks for listening. For my yoga teacher friends who are interested in working with the pregnant population, Prenatal Yoga Center offers an 85-hour Yoga Alliance certified program based on our three-pronged theory of prenatal yoga, asana, education, and community. Once a year, we hold our three-month immersion program in New York City. For those who cannot attend this training, Caprice and I are now traveling to different locations holding our training at hosting studios where we will spend six days working together, exploring and learning about prenatal yoga. This training consists of more than 50 hours working together. We also created a whole membership website with more than 20 videos corresponding directly to the manual you will receive. For more information, check out our website at prenatalyogacenter.com. Hope to work with you soon. Take care. Hi everyone, I'm Deb Blaschenberg and I am your host for Yoga Birth Babies and today we're going to talk about the fifth trimester. What does that even mean for working moms? So we have Lauren Smith Brody. She is the author of The Fifth Trimester, The Working Mom's Guide to Style, Sanity, and Big Success After Baby. And she's going to hand out some amazing tips for how to adjust to going back to work after baby. Let me tell you a little bit about Lauren. Lauren is the founder of the Fifth Trimester Movement and the author of The Fifth Trimester, A Working Mom's Guide to Style, Sanity, and Big Success After Baby from Doubleday, a simultaneous number one bestseller in Amazon categories of motherhood, women in business, and cultural anthropology. Her work has been featured on Good Morning America, CNN.com, Forbes, Fast Company, Harvard Business Review, Glamour, Refinery29, and dozen more outlets for business leaders and mothers. Prior to launching 
the fifth trimester movement. Lauren had a 16-year career in magazine publishing, most recently as the longtime executive editor of Glamour Magazine at Condé Nast. As both executive level manager and content expert, she led colleagues and 12 million monthly readers through career and life transitions with empathy and vital information. Raised in Ohio, Texas, and Georgia, she now lives in New York City with her husband and two young sons. Hi, Lauren. Thank you so much for joining me. I know you are a busy mom, and I think you're down in Florida right now, right? I am. I am. My <laughs> kids are in camp while I'm working, and my in-laws are totally have taken over. So it's oh, so nice. well, I'm so glad you carved some time out of your day to speak with me and out of your vacation. So let's jump into what brought you to writing this book. Um, so many things. Thank you for having me, first of all. Of um, I'm thrilled to, to be talking to you. Um, so, so many things. So I found myself um, really incredibly unprepared for motherhood as a working mom. Um, when I was pregnant with my first son, I remember um, during the first three trimesters, which everyone knows what those are, um, I, there was a ton of information available. I felt like I could prepare. I had my memo on my desktop of my computer at work, you know, ready to go at any moment. I had my bag packed two months in advance. And then this baby was born. And in spite of being, in spite of my being the oldest of four children and having babysat my whole life, I still found myself really, really floundering. Breastfeeding was really, really hard for me. Um, I had anxiety that was undiagnosed. Um, I was really kind of a disaster, but I was reading, um, Harvey Karp's book, the happiest baby on the block. And he described the concept of the fourth trimester. And I found it actually really, really helpful and reassuring to understand that this tiny baby, the reason my baby wasn't getting on a schedule yet and wasn't really connecting with me yet. And I wasn't getting anything back yet is that he was human babies are born essentially premature is his, his notion. And that if you just get to 12 weeks, your baby will wake up to the world, smile at you, give you back all these things that I sort of imagined I was going to get from the beginning. And so I remember reading the book and, you know, he describes, um, the five S's, you know, there's shushing and swaddling and you recreate the womb, um, to try to soothe the baby. And then, but also throughout the book, he says, just get to 12 weeks, get to 12 weeks, get to 12 weeks. And I'm like, Oh, 12 weeks is when I go back to work. And I also knew just, you know, for you know perspective, I knew that I actually had a better maternity leave. Much of it was paid. I was going back to a supportive work environment. I worked at Glamour Magazine at Condé Nast. It was largely women, you know, with all different approaches to career and motherhood. I had a supportive spouse. I had enough of a salary to be able to go a couple weeks without being paid and it was okay. And yet it still was just incredibly challenging for me. So I went back and I stumbled absolutely stumbled my way through. And at that point I was in an executive position and I was leading a team and I really had to physically be there. And part of me felt great to be back. This was something I knew how to do. And part of me felt like, Oh wait, this is actually my first and second and third day on the job as a new working mom. I'm, I'm, I'm a newbie at this. Um, so I got through it, um, kind of the only way I knew how, which was to be really honest and open about the struggle and to say, Hey guys, I'm going to go pump now (laughs) because that's just kind of the nature of who I am. And in that work environment, it was actually okay. And I found after a couple of months that the younger, um, employees on staff, people who I had hired and was sort of mentoring came to me and said, we just want to say thank you for being so open and honest about this whole motherhood thing. And I was like, Oh God, have I been, you know, have I been really unprofessional? Have I said one too many times that I didn't sleep last night? And then they went, you know, kind of one by one, as they came to me, they went on and they said, you've shown me that I I can do this one day. 
And I thought, oh, wow, this is, you know, I I can do it one day. I still want to be like you. I know it's really hard. And yet you're doing a good job that I aspire to do myself one day. I want to do this one day too. Thanks for showing me that this is possible. And I thought, oh, this is actually something else that I get out of my job that I didn't even realize is this idea of helping other women know that, you know, this is a, this is a finite transition. And so anyway, this is a very long winded way of saying that I've sort of discovered that there is this whole other trimester, you know, when American women in particular are going back to work, no matter what kind of job they have, um, far before, long before they're physically and emotionally ready to. And so that's a big, that's a big gap to hurdle. So how do you get through it in a way that is constructive, that actually helps the workplace, helps your emotional well-being, and helps you continue your career? That's and perfect. I it no, I, <laughs> and I love that because you not only described why you wrote the book, but you gave us some hint of who you are and what your own fifth trimester was like. Because I think so many times you know, we just see kind of like flashy social media and celebrities and it's like they just bounced back and we shouldn't have stumbles. So I think it's important to share that transitions are hard. Being a new mom is incredibly hard, no matter how much uh, influence you've had and how much experience you've had with other kids. I, you know, I had been a doula for years. I'd been to over a hundred births working with babies and new moms at that point for nine and a half years. And I'm like, I thought, I'm like, this is going to be fine. I know what I'm doing. I've been near newborns. And I remember my son being born and our midwife and doula left. And my husband and I are like, holy crazy. We have a baby now. (laughs) So it's no matter what your background is, it's a huge transition. Well, you hit on something I want to talk a little more about. So you commented on, but, um, the American maternity leave briefly during your research for this book, can you talk a little bit about the U.S. maternity leave compared to some other countries and the effects on the mom's postpartum health, mental health, physical health, and as well as the baby? Yes, of course. So, so the United States, as you know, you can see on your Facebook page and all of the pie charts that people post all the time, ranks absolutely dead last in the world in terms of supporting new parents in the workplace. Um, there is FMLA, which is the Family and Medical Leave Act, that offers 12 weeks of unpaid leave um, to American parents um, who want to be home with their baby. However, when you actually break that down, not everybody qualifies. Only 56% of moms even qualify for FMLA because there are all these stipulations. You have to have been at your company for a year in a full-time role. Your company has to have 50 or more employees. And what that ends up doing is that lots of people are ineligible to begin with. And when you think about it, like who can actually afford to take a quarter of their year unpaid? So what we end up with is people taking dramatically less leave than that. So, you know, a lot of people's argument is like, oh, we have leave. Well, first of all, it's unpaid. And, you know, actually leave is not available to many, many, many women. 25% of American women take two weeks or less maternity leave, which is, um, it's devastating. I mean, I think about where I was, you know, at the two week mark, I, I was, I will say this because, because of the kind of podcast that you do, like I, my mom showed me how to roll up a towel and then, you know, make it into a circle and sit on it like a donut. That's where I was at two weeks. There we go. Um, I was, I was physically really hurting and emotionally, um, the person I saw in the mirror was not somebody I expected to see and not somebody I liked in a way that helped me 
be the best mom I could be either. Um, so I was actually really surprised and, and, um, delighted and sort of, I mean, it was kind of a mix of emotions to find the research about, you know, what actually is the right amount of leave. And it turns out there is a number. So the, the amount of leave that actually, um, protects mom's mental health. So, um, at this point, you know, dramatically decreases your chances of having a postpartum mood disorder is six months of paid leave. Now for babies, it's actually the same number in terms of their physical health. So if the more paid leave a mom has, the more likely a baby is to have had his or her vaccinations on time, which go figure if you're going back to work really early and it's the kind of job where you have to be there and you are, you know, paycheck to paycheck, it's really hard to leave your job to be able to take your baby to the doctor to get shots, right? So there is, you know, that I think can be actually a very compelling argument. It is for, you know, the physical health of the next generation that, you know, more leave is allowed. But what I also found in my research is it's not just about the time at home um, before you go back to work. It's actually about the transition back. Because when I talked to, I talked to a broad, broad, broad spectrum of women, everyone from, you know, hourly workers who worked in factories to CEOs and executives at, you know, Fortune 500 companies. And what I found is, you know, we hear about these companies like Netflix and Facebook, and they're awesome. They're so, so, so supportive of new parents. And law firms um, sort of typically, at least in New York, offer usually six months of paid leave. It's, It's a healthy amount of leave. And yet when employees come back, they still have this enormous retention problem because they're coming back full speed or with expectations that they should be full speed. And so I think that there is a corollary to paid leave that is also about a gradual return back during this fifth trimester, whenever that transition happens, that um, could really, really improve our economy and could really support, you know, the family in America. Yeah, it's it's heartbreaking when I hear of moms going back. My own, some of my own friends went back. Um, one was a cantor, and it was right around the Jewish holidays. She's like, I have to go back. Oh, and I know six weeks, and I remember where I was at six weeks, and it was not it was not a place to be going back to work and on her feet, and it was it was pretty devastating. And even that, compared to some people, get two weeks or just can barely even afford that. It's so hard on the body, and and if you're trying to think about supporting breastfeeding and the bond with the child, it's, it's a, it's sad where our country is. So I know if someone has to go back, someone then has to watch the child. So <laughs> cause you can't just leave them on their own. So yeah. when you were researching, you broke down some different options. Can you mm-hmm. talk about some of the determining factors a parent should consider when choosing childcare? And you, I remember you also, re- you had a report, um, the NICHD report. So can mm-hmm. you comment on that a little bit? Yeah. So this was actually, um, you know, researching this book was an education. So I did a survey that was, you know, hundreds, more than 700 um, moms who answered it. Then I did longer in-depth interviews with um, more than a hundred. And it was really a huge education for me. These were single moms. These were um, adoptive moms. These were sort of typical, you know, mom with two kids, moms who's married to a man, but there was also lesbian moms who carried the baby, lesbian moms who hadn't carried the baby. But then it was also all approaches to career. So like I said, there were hourly workers, there were executives, there was everybody in between. Um, and what I found is that their approaches to childcare weren't necessarily what I expected. So I thought it was going to break down, you know, really along like economic lines, like, you know, if you can afford it, you have a nanny. Well, actually it's much more, um, regionally specific in terms of what the norms are. And then I wanted to look at this research. And so the report that you're referencing, um, was so, so helpful because it does, it, it attempted to answer by looking at 
15 years of early childhood development of the same children um, from all around the United States, it attempted to answer the question, how, what's better for, for the baby? Is it better for mom to be home with baby? Is it better for someone else to be caring for the child in the home? Is it better for the child to go to daycare? And what I found, and they, this is a compendium of studies, so it's hundreds of studies put together, and this is a huge long report. And essentially what it says is that, yes, there are benefits and drawbacks to each of the choices that you can make, and you can make an argument for any of them. However, when you get all the way to the end of this report, which I'm so glad I did, there is this amazing paragraph at the end that essentially says, but none of this is as important as mom's emotional comfort with the childcare decision that she's made, which was kind of shocking to me, you know, to hear from scientists, you know, who, who have looked at this. And so I realized that my approach in the research for that chapter really needed to be as much about logistical solutions, as much about emotional comfort as it did about logistical solutions. And so a lot of, um, a lot of what is in there and a lot of the advice that I found from other moms is about how do you get comfortable with someone being, you know, in your home who's not you? You know, are you the kind of person who feels like you're being replaced or can you can you wrap your head around that? Is that can that be a good thing for you? Um, how do you negotiate, you know, with your partner who is who is doing pickup and is that going to be a constant strain in your relationship? And if so, that might not be the right choice for you. Um, so it's a, it's as much as much about making an emotional decision, which I think, I think a lot of professional women in particular think like, Oh, I just, I just need to, you know, I need to see the list. I can't possibly, you know, just decide with my gut. Well, your gut may actually be the healthiest thing for your child in this case. This is the story of the one as head of maintenance at a concert hall. He knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working. The HVAC is humming and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Mm-hmm. And when you were talking about uh, regional, I'm just curious, um, yeah. where, where were, what regions had more nannies, but regions had more daycare. Do you happen to remember that off the top of your head? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I was, um, so, okay. So in the middle of the country, I talked to um, a couple of women who lived outside of Denver. And so daycare was definitely the most popular choice. And this is anecdotal. This is just mm-hmm. among the subset of people who I talked to. Um, daycare seemed to be, you know, there were there were long, long, long waits to um, get into the best daycare centers. And they were really center-based daycare. Um, in... Um, San Francisco and in the suburbs of San Francisco, I found that a lot of, and in LA too, a lot of moms were using, um, uh, in-home daycares, um, which is something that you don't see as much of in New York city where I live. Um, I think that just probably because of space reasons, you know, in New York, if to have a daycare in your home, you have to have, you know, you're going to take care of six children or whatever it is, you know, you, you need to have space. And so this was something that, you know, in, you know, in Santa Monica, you know, was, was more of a possibility. You could have a backyard, you could have, you know, a place for the kids to play. Um, and so that actually sort of the pecking order of, you know, who was on the wait list for which, which in-home daycare, um, was, um, was sort of what people talked about there, which was interesting. Um, and then, um, in New York city, um, it's really split between, um, between nannies and daycares, bigger, bigger center daycares. It ends up being an incredible cost either way. A lot of families found that once they had more than one child, um, daycare, which had been the more affordable option became less so, um, 
there's a lot of, um, debate about, you know, can you, can you pay your nanny, you know, on the books, not on the books. Um, so it was interesting to see that, you know, every region had kind of its own norms and that helped me check my own biases for the choices that we had made for our family. Um, which was really cool actually. Yeah. We ended up doing a nanny for a while. And then when we moved, um, Mm -hmm. kind of a preschoolish daycare for my youngest daughter. And I have to say it was emotionally hard for me because my son had a nanny and then part-time preschool and my daughter was going to full days and Mm. I felt like I wasn't giving them equal childhoods. I'm like, Oh, I spent all this time with my son and my daughter. But interestingly enough, she loves it. You know, and they're she, different people. And they're different know? people. And she's getting, you know, far more, you know, activity and stimulation than I could do. So um, it's interesting just to kind of have, you're talking about the emotional well-being. And so I have to remind myself that she's having a great time and that's mm-hmm. really what matters. But I do think like the mom's emotional point of view will make a really big difference. Yeah. All right. So let's keep going. So what are some of the things you suggest to help a mom? She's figured out her childcare, baby's being looked after by someone that she, you know, someone or someplace she trusts. How mm-hmm. can the mom set herself up for success in a few weeks before going back to work? Well, I think if, you know, if you can afford it, I think it is really, um, really helpful to start, start, you know, getting your childcare going even before you go back to work so that that first day back is not just a ripping up of a ripping off of a million band-aids, but you know, it's, uh, it, it just sort of eases the, um, the trans. So, you know, if you have an in-home caregiver, you know, maybe it's that you have that person start, you know, a week early if you can afford it, if you can budget for it. Um, I had one mom tell me that um, toward the end of her leave, she actually started taking her baby to daycare um, for a half a day at first, two weeks out from going back. And then the week before she went back, it was a full day. And she found herself actually by the, by like Wednesday or Thursday of that week, she was like, I think I'll just go back to work. Like she just (laughs) was surprised by how comfortable she felt because she had given herself that transition. So that's one thing you can do. Um, I also think it's really, um, really important to take care of yourself physically. There is such an incredible identity shift that happens, um, whether you want it to or not. And, you know, your, your colleagues certainly, you know, whether, you know, whatever their intentions are, like when you come back, they see you, like they see you as a mom. There's just, there's no getting around that. And, you know, you can have whatever feelings you have about that. Um, you know, hopefully most of them are positive, but, um, it helps when you look in the mirror and you like the person you see and you feel together and you know, you are going to look tired and you are going to look like someone who has less time in the morning to get ready than, than she might have before. And you're going to look like someone who does not commute in heels anymore. Because like, if you, I mean, if you do like, I'd love to talk to you. I'd interviewed no one like you, <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but you have to, um, you have to kind of find a way to do something for yourself because not only will you, you actually look better and feel better, but you will, you will say, I'm the kind of person who was able to do this for myself. So I must have my stuff together enough to be that way. So what I, what I kind of coined in the book is this idea of the generous minimum. So if you're the kind of person who like, you know, if you need to wash your hair every day in order to feel like your day has started and you're great. So do that then also throw on a necklace. Do it's the opposite of the French rule of take one thing off. It's like, do one more, one more tiny thing, because if you can kind of look in the mirror and know that you're the person who is able to do one more tiny thing, you're going to feel good about yourself. So schedule, you know, schedule a haircut if you can, um, you know, try to, um, 
you know, maybe you, um, look for your closet and organize it a bit. And, um, one tip that's in the book that I find I'm actually using now on book tour after having, you know, sat in a library, you know, for all these months writing a book in my yoga pants, I'm now going on book tour. And so I'm wearing dresses. So I'm using this tip too. Um, but so you have this huge closet, well, you don't have a huge closet, you have a closet full of clothes, many, many, many of which are not appropriate or they're not going to fit, or they were stylish, you know, a year and a half ago before you got pregnant. (laughs) And, um, so if you can just make a mini closet within your closet of the, it might be six things like of the six things that fit right now that make you feel good. And just consider that your closet and you will add to it, you know, as time goes on, as you realize you don't have a pair of pants that fit and you need to go buy a new pair of pants, add that as things start to fit from your closet, fold them in. Um, but it just makes your morning so much simpler and it keeps you from starting off your day with this feeling of like, Oh, nothing works. Um, so that's one thing you can do that is, you know, doesn't take very long because there probably aren't that many things to put in that closet initially. Um, but, uh, um, that's, that's helpful. Yeah. The whole, uh, postpartum, postpartum body and the transition back, I can imagine, um, for a woman that has kind of a work outfit or ensemble, being really challenging, being a yoga teacher, um, yoga pants pretty much fit whenever I need them to fit. So I didn't have that. (laughs) I actually sometimes see women in kind of work attire and sometimes I'm jealous. I'm like, wow, that must be so much fun to have such great clothes. And I'm always looking at my Lululemon pants, but like, and this is my work outfit. Um, but then I guess I see the, (laughs) I see the, believe me, they feel the same way about you. They wish, they wish. All right. So we talked about preparing to go back to work. Now, once back at work, any suggestions for settling in those first few days? Yeah. Um, so I think it's really helpful and this is, this is advice really for an office setting. Um, but it's, it's helpful to kind of think of your first few days back as a listening tour. Um, you know, possibly you will be thrown right back in to the mix and it'll be crazy busy, but there, you know, expect that there might be a little bit of a lag of people who have taken over certain projects or, you know, something that isn't quite starting for you for a couple of days and, um, and be okay with that. And so spend your first couple of days really just, um, um, catching up with people about, you know, how, how they covered, you know, your projects, what you can take back over, what's on the horizon. Um, and it just shows that you have a comfort with having those conversations that can be really helpful. Find out what's happening in their personal lives. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's a nice opportunity to take a breath, um, before you are, you know, buried and at your desk under paperwork or whatever it is that you do, um, to show them that, you know, although you're a new mom and that baby is the most important thing in the world to you, that you know that all these other people have personal lives too that are also important. That's a really um a really important lesson that I heard from a lot of women I interviewed was that that, you know, the perspective of their colleagues about them really changed when they took that breath and said, What's new with you? Oh, you're planning a wedding. Oh, your dad got sick. You know, like show that you care because you do about people's personal lives and they will feel so much better about caring about yours too. Absolutely. Cause you can go back thinking like the world is now swirling around you cause I'm a mom, I'm a mom, I have this and it could feel very self-centered. So I think that's great advice just so you can reconnect to people. So jumping a little bit ahead. So I like the chapter you talked about knowing when to ask for help. Can you explain what you discovered about this? Oh my gosh, that it is, I mean, it's the answer to everything and it's the thing that we have the hardest time with. Um, We are, I've, you know, I've kind of come to actually 
really be able to have, you know, there, there are these things that we sort of assume about ourselves that you don't realize are actually quite widespread. So, you know, essentially this is the first generation of American men who have been raised to believe they should participate 50, 50 in the home. Um, it is also the first generation of American women who have been raised to believe that the world is theirs and they have everything in front of them and they should be able to excel at it all. And social media certainly doesn't help with the image that we see of, you know, we're only seeing the pretty stuff, right? Um, so those two things fight against each other. And so you have, you know, a lot of moms, um, particularly moms who are, you know, in professional jobs who have moved up the ladder or whatever, who feel like they have to be the best at everything. And with the way, um, parental leave is set up, um, really not necessarily by our government, but just sort of in society wide, you know, we see that, you know, the moms typically take a lot longer at home than the dads do. And so what that does is even in the most well-intentioned couples, the most, you know, modern men who want to jump or partners who want to jump in and help. And, you know, moms who kind of know that they want a 50, 50 relationship. Um, these moms are at home and they are doing everything and they want to be the best at it because they're the ones who are on the scene. And so they treat being a new mom like they would their job and they take over. And then you end up with this, you know, all these dads and partners who don't actually know what to do and don't know how to help and aren't the expert. And so then fast forward to when mom goes back to work and you have these patterns that have been set up very, very early on of like, well, dad doesn't know how to bathe the baby. You know, dad doesn't know how to, you know, put the onesie on without, you know, like touching the soft spot or whatever it is. And it really, um, impacts the trust that, um, that women have of their partners. But the truth is there is absolutely nothing that a partner can't do that, um, that you can except for produce milk. Like that is it, you know, and even that certainly dad can feed baby in a bottle. Um, so that is one, um, and the dads that I interviewed and talked to, I did a whole separate dad partner survey and they're aware that you need logistical help. They are not actually aware of specifically what, what you need. Um, and they're not aware of emotionally that you even need their help emotionally. They're not even sure that they know how to, how to satisfy that. So a lot of the, um, mental health experts who I talked to said that they advise, um, new moms who are having a difficult time to actually find the sentence, find the word to say to your partner. And this applies to also to your mom, also to your boss, whoever in your life you need support from to find the words to, to ask for what you need emotionally. So, you know, yes, you should, you should feel very comfortable saying like logistically, like, Hey babe, I, you know, can you please pick up, you know, our daughter at daycare on X day? Or, you know, hey, can you please bring me a bagel while I'm nursing? You know, those are logistics. But you also should feel comfortable saying things like, hey, once a day, can you please just tell me that I'm a good mom? That would be really helpful for me to hear that, especially from you. And it's it's mortifying to have to ask for that kind of thing. It's like, you know, you don't ever want to have to ask someone to walk by, you know, to empty the dishwasher that they walk by that's full, right? But it's the same thing. As soon as you do it, you're so grateful to have that help. And it's a little bit like the generous minimum idea with, um, how you feel and look physically. So you also realize you're the kind of person who had your stuff together enough that you could ask for the help you needed. And that ends up sort of cyclically boosting you and making you feel more confident. Um, so ex expand that lesson to kind of every relationship in your life of everybody you could ask for help from because people want to help. They just don't know what to offer. And I think for certain women, especially for 
I would think very type A, very corporate minded, like go getter, achiever. It could be hard to ask for help as well as to recognize I can't do it all. I know that I definitely fall into that category where I really do try to be like the businesswoman and the mom and I get the costume in the bag for this and the snacks going here. And then, and then I just get overwhelmed. Like, Oh my God, I'm doing too much. And I don't think I'm alone in these impossible standards. (laughs) I I think I wonder part of it is society putting that on is our moms putting that on themselves. So I think asking for help while it sounds so simple can really be really hard. Yeah, it is. It's incredibly hard, but once it's a, it's a muscle. I mean, it is like, you know, it's like, it's like doing yoga. Like it gets easier every time you do it and you find you can actually stretch a little further and you get a little stronger. Um, it's great advice. I'm going to try to exercise that muscle a little bit more. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So one of the things I actually have a friend who are our older kids or two older kids are the same age. And she just had a third, which boggles my mind because I oh couldn't God. even imagine that. <laughs> so I have a three and six year old. My son just turned six. So she now has this brand new three week old. And as soon as I thought about that, the first thing that slapped me in the face was the sleep deprivation that comes with new babies. And I see it on the moms that walk in the door for postnatal yoga. What are some hints or tips for surviving sleep deprivation? Oh, there's such good stuff. And I wish I had known it when I, when I needed it. So sleep deprivation really is, that is the fifth trimester, right? It's like, it's the time when you are back at work and you're not sleeping yet. And so like everything in this book, I really didn't approach this as, um, the research for this as baby care, because like, certainly there are so many methods for getting your baby to sleep and far be it from me to tell you which one to use, use what works for you. However, I decided to look at, you know, what helps mom when she is sleep deprived at back at work. And so I asked, um, the women who I surveyed the hundreds of women, you know, when, when did you start sleeping? When was, when was your first regular full night of sleep for you? So when did you start sleeping through the night? So like seven, seven, eight hours. And they, the average was seven months out. So think about when women are going back to work, you know, usually two months, three months out. And then it was by seven months when they were, um, when they were finally getting some sleep. So, um, I talked to, uh, the experts I talked to were experts in, um, maternal sleep and the family. And then I also found this awesome woman who, um, who studies as a sort of side project, um, the sleep, the use of, I want to get this right. Um, the use of sleep deprivation as a military weapon of war. And I was like, you, you're great. <laughs> tell me, tell me what I need to know. And so, um, her advice and the advice from the other sleep experts, um, is very specific. So you want to protect the time that you have, um, just before you go to bed, it's called sleep hygiene. It's a very trendy term. And yet actually it really, really does impact the quality of the sleep that you get. So when your eyes are closed and you're sleeping that you, you get better quality sleep, it's going to fuel you better in when you're awake in the morning. Um, and to do that, you know, the hour before bed, you want to have no screens in your life. You don't want to sleep with your, um, your phone by your head, which is, and I don't always take all this advice myself. Sometimes I do that. Um, you, if you can install dimmers on your lights and set them to 50%, um, for that hour before you go to bed, which just sort of tells your body like, okay, we're getting into sleep mode. Um, if you are up in the night, because you probably are up in the night, um, don't turn on lights instead. If you can order from Amazon or get at your, um, 
you know, a hardware store, something called a red light, which is like the old fashioned glowy red light that they use in a dark room. That is actually really, really um, helpful because it doesn't affect your melatonin levels. It's a little creepy looking, and this is not to be clear. This is not like a, a Christmas tree light with, you know, that's a white light in, in red clothing. This is actually like a different kind of light emitted. Um, and use that as your nightlight in the kitchen where you're preparing a bottle or in the bathroom, you know, wherever you're changing the baby, that actually will help you be able to get back to sleep once your baby is asleep. Um, speaking of which a lot of women, myself included, have a very hard time with that. So you've gotten baby back down and you are lying in bed and you are just adrenalized is my word for it. You're just lying there like, and then you're upset because this is your one opportunity to sleep and the baby's going to be back awake in another two hours and you can't, you know, even fall asleep now. So the advice for that is to, um, actually take your clock because your clock can be kind of a torture device and turn it around. Don't even look at it and just lie there and say to yourself, do some breathing, um, you know, which is always helpful, but say to yourself, it is okay if I don't fall asleep right now. All I need to do is rest. Resting is actually beneficial to me and it's going to help. And inevitably what ends up happening is that relaxes you enough to fall asleep. Now in the workplace, um, I found this tip really, really helpful. If you have control over your schedule, which is an assumption, but as much as you can, um, try to schedule something in your day after lunchtime. So around two o'clock, um, there's kind of a universal slump that everybody experiences, whether you have a new baby at home and you're not sleeping or not. Um, that makes you very, very sleepy. It's while you're digesting lunch. So if you can schedule something into your day to happen then that actually requires adrenaline, this is very counterintuitive, but if you can make a presentation, if you can, you know, you have to speak up on a conference call, you, um, you just have to do something that requires you to be on that actually gives you a boost of adrenaline that will stay with you the rest of the day. And that's really helpful. Then there's a whole other bunch of advice about how to enlist your partner's help, um, in the night. I just want to say, you know, particularly in partnerships where your husband or partner is back at work and you're at home, there are a lot of women who think like, oh, I can't, I can't wake him up. I have to be the one who's up in the night because I'm not back at work yet. Well, the work that you are doing, and you really have to believe this, the work that you are doing, keeping a human baby alive that next day, that is vital work. It is at least as important as your partner's work. And so if you can, you know, have these conversations in the morning about how the night went. There's actually studies that show that, um, that dads are just simply unaware of what happened in the night in a way that moms are really aware, have the conversation. So he understands what is happening in the nighttime and then, um, negotiate to trade off. And, you know, it may be that you trade off night by night in a perfect world. You would trade off. You take two nights. I'll take two nights. That's what actually resets you and helps you feel better. Um, but at a bare minimum, if you can get two REM cycles, so that's your REM cycle, not baby's REM cycle. So that is about a total of three and a half to four hours of sleep in a row. That makes all the difference for your physical and emotional health, health the next day. So if one of you, if you have room, go in another room. Um, if not, earplugs, eye mask, and the person without those tools is on duty. And then you switch in the night. Amazing. Cause that was something that really killed me. And as I heard you talk about the red light, I'm like, Oh, I wish I knew that my yeah. son, I'd get up, I would do the feeding. I would change a diaper. I'd bounce him back to sleep. I'd finally get him back and then I'd be wide awake. So yeah. <laughs> had I, had I known that that could have changed a lot. So the whole idea of going back to sleep, if you are a breastfeeding mom and you want to continue to give your child breast milk, it now comes down to pumping. And what I love is that you said you're like pumping doesn't suck. I have to admit, I kind of thought it did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I had it pretty easy. Like 
I would finish teaching prenatal. I'd actually sit myself against the wall in the middle of the yoga room, set my pump up cover, and then just start pumping. Or sometimes it's even behind the desk and you'd hear it during class. And I did it partly because sometimes the pregnant woman would look at me like, what's that? But I'm like, you're going to be here soon enough. And it was that kind of setting. But I also had one time, um, my daughter was three months old and I had grand jury duty and they wanted me to pump in a bathroom. And I'm like, no way, you need to give me a room. And it was also a way to get a little quiet time. But I found that... Did they? Did they find space for you? They did. They gave me an old office. Um, But dragging the pump around, I was lucky enough to keep one at home, one at work. But the schedule of pumping, like even if I was out doing errands and I'm like, oh, I got to pump, I would be in Equinox's dressing room pumping. I mean, if you're going to keep your supply up, you have to pump. So I found it, the sound would literally haunt me, <laughs> that Mandela pump in style. I could still hear it ringing in my head. Me so, too. <laughs> so I'd love to hear your perspective on why pumping doesn't suck because <laughs> um, it was, it kind of ruled my life for, for a long time. So it did for me too. I mean, I probably should have titled it. It doesn't have to suck as much as it maybe could suck. Like it could suck a little less. <laughs> I like that. Okay. I, that I can buy. <laughs> it is. It's really, really hard. Um, you know, and you probably learned as I did after, you know, after you had done it for a couple of months, kind of where you could cheat and where you couldn't, you know, I found that if I needed to, I could skip one pumping, but if I skipped two, my gosh, the next day I was not going to have as much milk. Um, you know, I found that I tried to, um, and this is again, like for a typical hourly, you know, typical hours in an office setting. Um, you know, my biggest pump was in the morning. Um, and so I would try not to have a meeting first thing when I got to work, but first thing I would pump. And that at least sort of got me on the right track and I could see how many ounces I had. And I knew that I was going to pump two more times in the day, but at least I was starting with this amount. Um, that was helpful. Um, I think so much about pumping is about being comfortable talking about it. And, um, I interviewed women who were spanned the gamut. You know, there were women who did not pump because they just could not deal with the idea of doing that at work. Um, there were workplaces that had, I kid you not, this is a financial institution that I heard about that had a like professionally decorated lactation suite, like gorgeous, you know, that would keep you pumping an extra six months just to have a little well. escape there. <laughs> But wait, views over the river, right? Like amazing. (laughs) However, getting there from most of the women who worked in the company was like a 15 minute schlep with two Mm. different elevators, elevator banks. And like, you couldn't do it three times a day. Could you actually spend 15 minutes like getting someplace and setting? So anyway, it was not, not usable. So what I found is actually the most helpful thing that sort of helps women deal with their own feelings of, um, openness about pumping and sort of the stigma about it in the workplace is, um, if you can actually make pumping time working time, that's incredibly helpful. Now this is not for everyone. There are some women who actually just need to have a meditative state, you know, and be looking at a picture of their baby's face in order to have, you know, in order to have a good pumping experience. But a lot of women, especially once they'd been back at work for a couple of weeks, talked about how, you know, they could kind of jury rig it so that they could either wear a hands-free pumping bra, or I remember I used, um, this was, but like, I didn't have one of those, but I used, uh, 
uh, ponytail holders and actually found a way to connect it to the top of my bra strap. And, and so your hands are free and, you know, set up a call and do it on conference call. And if people hear a noise, okay, they hear a noise. It's fine. You know, um, I found that it was a good way to actually get through my emails three times a day in a specific chunk where people knew they couldn't interrupt me. Um, you know, and, and that's going to, the, the office setting and the logistics of it are going to be different job by job, industry by industry, person by person. But as much as you can ask for Wi-Fi, ask for phone, ask for things that are going to make pumping time, working time work for you, um, that's going to work for everybody. And you're going to feel that much more comfortable being like, peace out and pumping. But hey, guess what? I'm coming out with a lot of work done. You know, our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah, baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. Yeah, I used, I had no problem with a hands-free pump. Uh, the little bra was a life, a life changer. And then I'm going to put my own little tip out there, if you don't mind, for those yeah. going back to work. Have an extra set of all the parts, especially yes. that little white, I don't know what it's called. It's like the, is that, it is that little thing that goes the on. Flap. The flap, mm-hmm. yeah. Because mm-hmm. especially if it breaks, there was one time mine had torn. I'm like, why is this breast not producing milk? And then I looked and it had torn, so it didn't have the suction. So that's my tip because every now and then I'd show up, either one ripped or I forgot a piece of the pump setup, mm-hmm. and I'd be sending my assistant either to my house or to the upper breast side to grab me. Yes. <laughs> My tubing <laughs> broke on so many occasions. Um, the other thing that is really, I just, just you know, why? Watch a couple of YouTube videos because with uh, Jane Morton is the the expert there. There's also a woman who has a website and Instagram called the Milken Mama, um, <laughs> who is great. Learn how to hand express because yes. there will be a time when you do not when you're tubing cracks and you're on a freaking airplane and you're engorged and you just like it into a cup. All the difference <laughs> in the world <laughs> had to do that. And, and it express. works. And it works. Amazing. I mean, it does what it has to do. But yes, absolutely. My my lactation consultant, uh, consultant Andrea, is like, first thing you got to do, can't rely on other people. Sometimes you got to do it yourself. Yeah. All right. So that's good about pumping. Um, so let's also talk about moms, uh, especially ones who are having a hard time with getting some me time. Mm-hmm. This is, okay, this is not my most popular advice, but... I have to say, I think it's realistic and I'm not going to be Pollyanna about it, but me time when you have a new baby and you're going back to work is just no longer going to be about your face in one of those massage table donuts, like, you know, being squished and you're like in bliss. That is no longer what me time is, right? Not at least not for now. Me time is really so much of a mindset shift about how you think of taking pleasure in your day. So me time might be actually your commute. If on your commute, you're listening to a podcast you love, or you are, you know, catching up on Facebook, or you have a group friends text that, you know, everyone's commuting at the same time and you guys are in touch. That is a fueling wonderful thing that just gives you something you've done for yourself. And that is me time. Um, now there's also a ton of obviously baby care and tasks that happen in the bookends of your day. If you work a typical, like, you know, nine to six or whatever day, you know, there's stuff you're doing in the morning, there's stuff you're doing in the evening 
listening, I really advise figuring out of all the baby tasks, what are the things that bring you the most pleasure? Do you love, I know that for me, I really loved picking out my baby's outfits every morning. It just, it's so silly, but you know, I'm Southern. Like, I don't know. I love the baby clothes. And so I, um, you know, even though our sitter came and was the one who was actually bathing the baby and dressing him, I would always lay the clothes out. And I told her, I wasn't, you know, trying to be type A about it. I was just like, I really love doing this. And she, she totally got it. Um, so it's also about figuring out, you know, what are your top three baby tasks that you actually love? Maybe it is bathing the baby. I, I guarantee you it's not writing thank you notes. Um, you know, like what are they? And how can you arrange your day so that you are experiencing the pleasure of those things? Um, you know, maybe it's moving the bath from morning to night, whatever it is. And that's not, you know, obviously that's not me time in the classic definition of it. But again, knowing that you have taken control over it and knowing that you have done this thing for yourself, um, by offloading whatever those other duties are to your partner, to whoever's caring for your baby can be really helpful. I've actually told my kids about the idea of self-care because every Saturday I go to the gym every Saturday morning from 8.30 to 9.30. And there's many a times where like my son is attached to my leg. Don't go, don't go. And my husband's like pulling him off. And I finally one day said, this is how mommy takes care of herself so that I have something to give back to you. Because if I'm so depleted and I'm just about giving to you, it's going to make mommy a very mean mommy. And so I'm trying to get, I think it kind of sinking in that, if I can take care of myself, they're going to grow up to want to take care of themselves and then to honor their partner needing to take care of themselves. Maybe it's a little far-fetched that I'm trying, (laughs) that I'm just justifying it, but I do, I'm hoping it's setting a pattern of respect. I do the exact same thing. I think it's great. Okay, good. Yay. All right. Validation. Love validation. Including the peeling of the child off my leg. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) That that happens on several occasions in several scenarios. (laughs) So you're talking a lot about balancing kind of work and family for moms that leave and have a typical office job. What about the mom who works for herself? What do you think about balancing work and family? So I, there's a whole chapter in the book that is about, um, that's about working for yourself, whether you are a freelancer, you know, and you're a one woman show and you're working out of, you know, the desk that is in your bedroom of your apartment, or you are a CEO of a thousand person company and you are, you know, the last word. So both of those women, um, both of those kinds of women talked to me about how they felt like like they really could not take maternity leave, um, that they were always on. And again, something, some of it is a mindset shift of kind of knowing that, you know, if you are, if you have this freedom and flexibility in your life, it is something that you have chosen. So yes, you know, you may be on vacation and, you know, checking in because you're the only one doing it. Um, that's, you know, that's just the reality of it. Um, but you know, do you get to go? You will eventually get to go to the swimming demonstration, you know, at school or whatever it is. And kind of, you know, knowing that this is a choice that you're making for yourself is, is kind of a helpful mindset. Um, it's also really, I I heard from, um, a woman who she simultaneously was a a medical transcriptionist at home as well as running an in-home daycare of her own. And she really learned to draw boundaries with these children. And she broke up her day into 15 minute segments. And she actually took, um, tape and put it around, you know, with a, a perimeter around her desk. And they knew that they could come and step, you know, with their toes on the line and, um, you know, and they were playing within, within eyesight, but you know, these are kids who are old enough to play and to play for 15 minutes. And, um, 
you know, she set boundaries with them that I think a lot of moms have a hard time setting with their own children, but she gave me a lot of great advice about, you know, how to do that with your own kids as well. Um, you know, so it's about, it's about gaming your day. It's about taking advantage of the flexibility you do have. So if the line at the grocery is going to be shorter at 11 AM than it is at 6 PM, like if you work for yourself, don't go at 6 PM, go at 11, you know, like you may as well. And you will actually have a more efficient day for it. Yeah, I definitely find as someone that works for myself, um, the boundaries are hard. I literally was in labor with yeah. my second child and they had to take my phone away from me as I was texting our marketing person. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. okay, I get it. I get it. I'm really going to stop this now. <laughs> All right. As we start to wrap things up, I want to talk about chapter 12. You go through 18 life-changing conversations. <laughs> Is there one or two that you want to share? Kind of like sure, top yeah. Ones. Sure. So I I think the top one at home is, um, how to deal with someone in your family who is meddling and offering (laughs) advice that you don't want necessarily. Um, so the best advice that I heard about this was to just, again, take a breath and ask yourself, what is the most generous interpretation of this person's actions and words that I can make? And more often than not, you'll find that, you know, the advice has come out of love. It's come out of caring. And if you can go into the conversation, you know, knowing that that's really helpful. Um, one thing specifically for mother, for mothers-in-law, and I have two, and I have wonderful relationship with both of them. If they're listening, I love them to pieces. Um, cause my husband's uh, parents are both remarried, um, is to, um, I'm trying to remember what the, um, sorry, lost my train of thought. <laughs> I'm thinking about my wonderful mothers-in-law. Um, <laughs> There was a woman in Colorado who was telling me about how um, her mother-in-law was, you know, giving a ton of advice that, you know, just was not actually applicable to their family situation. And she finally figured out that what she needed to say to her was this, and it worked. She said, I love your son. You did an amazing job of raising him. The person you raised is the person I love most in the entire world, and he is that way because of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That said, the two of us are making decisions for our family, which I know you did too, and you did it the right way, and we're going to try our best to, to, you know, pay it forward and do this too. And I think that starting with the compliment was very, very helpful in that case. Um, now for work, um, a lot of women talk about having conversations that are really challenging around asking for, um, flex time, asking for a different schedule, asking for, um, perhaps an extended, um, parental leave, whatever it is. And the best advice there is simply to enter into every conversation, knowing that you are managing up. So you are, you come in with a plan. It is a simple plan. It is not 10 pages long because that's incredibly overwhelming, but in it, it, it solves for the questions that you anticipate your supervisor having. So how are you still going to get your job done given what you're asking for? What are your deliverables? Know what those are. Then also make sure that you, um, you intuit what your boss is going to have to do to make this work for you. So your boss probably has a boss or has someone he or she has to clear this through. So what information, what research can you arm him or her with to make it an easier ask for him or her? So that might be whatever the policy is in your own workplace that he might or she might just not know, or it might be that you've done research about, you know, other law firms in your area and what they offer. If you're a lawyer, um, 
So arm that person with as much research as they could need to have to make this work for you. Make it easy. Then this is one of the best pieces of advice um, that I heard. You also want to make sure it's temporary. So say to the person you're asking this of, can we just try it? Can we try it for two months? Can we try it for three months? Make it seem like this is not a, you know, a forever and ever amen kind of decision, but it is, um, it's something you're just going to try. And so what that does is it eases the person's mind of like, they're not, you know, they're not changing the world. They're just going to try this, but it also sort of, um, secretly gives you an opportunity, especially if you have a tiny baby who is changing all the time, you know, their needs change month by month. Your needs are going to change month by month. It gives you an opportunity to readdress the conversation and say like, actually what I need now more is X, not Y. Um, and to, you know, and to go to negotiate for that instead a few months in. Wonderful, wonderful advice. Your book in general really was, it was fun to read too. And great advice. And listeners are actually, I'm going to get this out in a few moments, but listeners can actually win three copies. But first, before we get to the details of that, so if you're listening to this, you're like, I need this book. You can (laughs) either go buy it or you can enter to win. But before we do that, I just want to hear what else you're up to right now, Lauren. Oh, great. So I have actually, um, I've launched the fifth trimester as a movement and a company too. So, you know, when you were talking about working for yourself, this is my big transition. (laughs) I am now out of corporate America and working for myself. And so I'm going into companies. I love it. Yes. (laughs) I mean, it is, the learning curve is enormous. Um, but it's, um, it's a joy. I'm so proud of all of it. And it feels great to do something I believe in so much. Um, so I'm going into companies and I'm giving lunch and learns and talks and helping them, um, just embrace this idea of workplace culture change for parents. Um, in a lot of cases, the companies actually have, um, good policies in place, but they find that employees are not using them or are still kind of grumbly. So, you know, how do you get around that? So I'm also offering, um, uh, some consulting and some, in, you know, sort of inside company surveying to help companies better understand their employees' needs and kind of where they stack up in the workplace than, you know, against their competitors too. Wonderful. So I'll make sure that we have your website in our show notes. So oh, thank you. Great. Thank you. I so appreciate it, uh, Lauren, everything I have to say, and thank you listeners for listening. So for our listeners out there, as I mentioned, we have three copies that Lauren and Doubleday are giving away. So if you want your copy uh, for the fifth trimester and yoga birth baby listeners to win your copy, you have to follow Lauren and prenatal yoga center on Instagram and Facebook. So go to at the fifth trimester and at prenatal yoga center and details will be listed in the show notes. So you'll find out exactly how to enter, but you have to go to those things on Instagram and Facebook. Look at the show notes and good luck to three winners that will get this fantastic book. So I just want to wrap things up and thank you again. I think what you have to offer the, the movement, the awareness, the inspiration, but also just the moment of like the pause, take a breath and reminding yourself it'll all be okay. And it will. It really, really will. Time does move on. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, I hope you enjoy your time in Florida. Thank you for your time. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Take care. Bye. Thanks. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.